Welcome to Doctor Informed, brought to you by the BMJ, made in collaboration with this institute and sponsored by Medical Protection. Doctor Informed aims to take you beyond medical knowledge. We're talking about things that you need to be a good doctor, but which don't necessarily involve medicine. I'm Clara Monroe. I'm a surgical registrar in the northeast of England and a clinical editor at the BMJ. In this episode, we're going to be talking about misogyny and sexual harassment, specifically in surgery, but also in the context of wider healthcare. This episode comes with a trigger warning. Some of the topics we're going to be talking about will be hard, and we'll be touching on things that some people might find quite difficult to hear. But we think they need to be said, and having these conversations is the start of a journey where ultimately we hope we can affect change. The idea for this episode has come from a number of different catalysts, most recently the RCS Bulletin article, Sexual Harassment in Surgery, and the candid response from Philippa Jackson about her experience, but also from the Royal College Independent Review on Diversity and Inclusion um, in March 2021 by Baroness Kennedy. I am delighted and honoured to be joined today by Helena Kennedy, Baroness and Kennedy of the Sh- sorry Baroness Kennedy of the Shores, who is a Scottish barrister, broadcaster, and Labour member of the House of Lords. I could fill an entire episode with the accolades detailed on your Wikipedia page. Um, I think my favourite is that you rebel against your party whip in the House of Lords more frequently than any other Labour peer, having a dissent rate of thirty three percent. No doubt you'll need no introduction for many of our listeners, but for those who might be less familiar, could I ask you to introduce yourself in your own words? Um, Well, I'm not a a Scottish barrister. I'm a Scot who is a barrister who practices in (laughs) England and Wales. I mean, only because I I didn't ever qualify in law in Scotland, although I'm rather lucky because um, from time to time, um, Scotland, Scottish institutions invite me in as an independent um, uh, chair to different inquiries and the likes. So I do get to do things for Scotland. And I've recently done a report on misogyny for, for the government, and I, I'm hoping it will lead to legislation. Um, how do I describe myself? Well, I'm, I'm a lawyer. First and foremost, and central to my heart, is the fact that I am a professional in the field of law. And, uh, and that's been my life's work. Um, although I've had forays into lots of other things. I've, been a, I've done broadcasting. I write. I've, I've been the head of uh, an Oxford college for seven years where I created an Institute of Human Rights. Um, I've played a number of other academic roles and led a number of uh, inquiries into education. Um, I also, of course, sit in the House of Lords. And it's right that I sit on the Labour benches, but I'm very much... Um, uh, an independent voice. I, I'm there because I, of my expertise as a lawyer. And um, and so when governments of any complexion are doing bad things in relation to law, as I see it, then I will not vote with them. Um, and, uh, and so I apply um, a very uh, uh, careful eye to legislation. And, um, and whether it's Labour in government or Conservatives in government or coalition governments, I will be quite rigorous in making sure that I don't just trot through lobbies to vote with um, the benches um, that I sit on with others on them. I, I really try to do what I think one should do in the House of Lords, which is be an independent reviewer of legislation and try to improve it. 
Many of our listeners um, will know you, obviously, for leading the Royal College Independent Review on Diversity and Inclusion. Um, And this was commissioned, in in the words of the RCS, because it was felt that the college was not demonstrating itself to be a diverse and inclusive institution. I'm really interested to know, how did you get involved with this report and what made you agree to take on this huge challenge? Well, um... I was um, uh, invited by the president to head up um, this investigation to look at um, diversity and inclusion because there had been, um, to say the least, there had been ripples of uh, concern um, when yet again um, in the elections that those who had been appointed to all the most senior roles in the Royal College um, were um, professional men of a certain age and uh, and uh, and they were all white and uh, and so um the, the, there was a general sort of unease around um and lots of people were quite expressive about it that's what social media makes possible nowadays and so there might have been grumbling in the past but it would not have reached the important years and so um in fairness to neil mortensen and i really uh, pay tribute to him. He really felt something had to be done. It wasn't enough to just sweep it under the carpet. And I'm glad that he did um, that because um, I think that it is right that the medical profession has got to be doing what's happening in other parts of our of our firmament, you know, whether it's, you know, whether it's in the world of politics or, you know, whether it's, it's at the BBC or wherever it is. I mean, it really is important important um, that um, our major institutions and those that the, the, the institutions um, and entities that serve the general public particularly should reflect um, our world. Now, um, I've spent a lot of time within my own profession and it's not very different from surgery in many ways because it's, you know, the bar was the sort of, you know, the, the kind of alpha male end of law where um, certain kinds of men chose it, you know, and for its great performance uh, elements as well as its, uh, um, its skills in understanding and knowing law. And so it was not a conducive place for women. I mean, it, you know, it really was like a gentleman's club, the bar. And so I, I've written about it since I was in my late 20s. And um, as, uh, as a young woman in the law, I, I I was a rare entity and I was particularly a rare entity because I came from a working class background. I came from Scotland. I wasn't even English. Um, And uh, I was an outsider to some extent. And that can give you a perspective um, that is different, that you see things with perhaps a clarity that, that, that those who are inside can't. And, uh, and so I've written about this and I've examined it, I've followed it, I've compared it with other parts of the world and so on. And so it's not going to be surprising that um, if, uh, uh, um, you know, something like the Royal College of Surgeons wants to take a look at diversity, they're going to say, who should we get to do this? And I'm sure that my, my name was raised because um, it's known that I've written about this kind of thing um, quite a lot. So I came in and I was, I was given the freedom to put together my own panel. And that was really nice, Clara, because I... I um I really did you know too often you know the, the, the I see this in politics and I, I'm not a politician I'm a parliamentarian but I'm not a politician but I um I've seen it up close that um you know you want something done you choose somebody who's going to deliver you know a nice sort of report that says oh there's a little bit of this and a little bit of that and if you just tweak around the edges it'll make it all fine and everybody can go home um, and um, so um. I, that's not me. And so I wanted to make sure that um, the panel who were in on this were going to be bringing some of their own life experiences to the, to the party, to the, to the work. Anyway, 
it was it was a really rich experience. Um, and what came out of it for me was a, a sense of admiration for people in the in the world of medicine, because I, I think it's become much tougher. Um, in the same way that it's become tougher for young people coming into law. You know, although we've widened, widened opportunities and we're seeing more people uh, of color coming in, more, more um, people from many, much more diverse backgrounds, lots more uh, women, you know, half the, the law schools are women. We've got um, uh, many, many more people coming from ordinary uh, backgrounds to do law degrees. But let me tell you, they're still, they still come up against serious hurdles. And there's also a way in which, um, you know, um, uh, there's, there's something's going on in our in our current in our current culture, which is that as more people are becoming educated and getting chances to go into professions and so on, there's almost a deprofessionalizing of those of those worlds, and I want us to hold on to that thought about deprofessionalizing, you know, about about the idea that. Um, uh, um, you know, uh, somehow that you're, I mean, even, even doctors are just, are talked about as, you know, you know, I can't remember, you know, they're, they're talked about in workforce terms as if they're suppliers of, of, you know, something <laughs> rather than that they are actually a caring profession that, that um, doctors and nurses come into the profession because of a vocation. They want to help people. They're choosing to do something that actually is about ministering to the needs of people who are, are, are in need, of, in need of, of care. But nobody's given enough time in, in, in medicine at the moment. People are working their socks off and they're working all hours and they're actually ground down and they're not treated with respect. And I have to say, not treated with respect sometimes by the, the, the folk who consider themselves to be their employers, by the trusts, by the hospitals, by the management class. You know, there is, it's as if they are sort of, you know, drones to deliver certain things. And I, I feel that uh, that should be confronted much, much more readily. Once you set up a system where people are not being respected and that's what human rights is about and that's the kind of lawyer I am if people are not being respected um and not and you you know and without um you know a sense of mutual respect then I think that you you end up denigrating people and it, it creates a sort of normalization of certain kinds of behavior and uh, and of course what we heard in taking evidence was shocking um and it's particularly shocking of course when there are multiple discriminations you know, where somebody's a woman, but also a woman of color. So black women surgeons, you know, there's the stories that they could tell of, of being degraded in the presence even of patients. I'm interested in what your reflections on what the report found in terms of general themes that the report uncovered um, when you did the independent review. The, the, the independent review was very clear in, in its outcomes in that it it, uh, it described that there are still handicaps faced by women in the profession, women, um, um, the low level of women um, becoming uh, consultants, um, the ways in which um, women um, uh, experience discrimination at different stages, um, and, uh, and, and, the, and the sort of aggressions that they experience all the time, which are so undermining of confidence. Also, the, the, the real problems that women face um, as inevitably they will 
um, if they have families, if they have children, when they have small children. And there isn't enough accommodation of that. And accommodation so that if they're married to another doctor, that somehow their jobs can, can be in, within the same vicinity and so on. I mean, we heard from people who, you know, who were, in order to advance in their own specialism, would have to live separate lives. I mean, that's ridiculous. Um, and it should be possible for an organisation like the National Health Service to, to be able to accommodate um, family life in, in a better way. Now, the other thing was, um, discrimination on the grounds of race. Um, there was no doubt that um, there were problems around the advancement of people of colour um, to senior positions and not feeling a sense of welcoming. And, uh, and so uh, what we really did discover was that it was m very much harder for people of colour. And we also, there were question marks that we raised about um, whether there were sort of unconscious biases when people were being interviewed, when people were being tested in exams orally and so on. And, uh, and those things really matter. Um, because of course, we kept being told in the law, um, women of course will get there in the end if there's 50% women in the law schools, of course they'll end up being 50% women in the, on the bench on, in, as judges tell that to the Marines, um, because, of course, it doesn't take account of the fact that women's lives are not like that. They often, there's an attrition rate when women are in their 30s and early 40s, because doing it along with a family is very, very hard and difficult. Um, but also, and now, you know, so older women can be very, very unhelpful to younger, younger people. Uh, and, it, and it shocks me when women of my age are don't, don't, uh, you know, are not enablers of younger women. They say, oh, I meant do it. I remember senior women saying to me when I was in my 30s, you know, um, when I was asking for change, seeking change, that chambers should be more embracing of women taking time out to have uh, um, children and it not being held against them. And, uh, uh, and older women would say to me, don't rock the boat. Um, I mean, you know, uh, um, and there weren't that many of them. And of course, there is a queen bee syndrome that, you know, where women, senior women, you know, they quite like the idea of being the rare woman surgeon and people around the dinner table. Oh, my God, you're a woman surgeon. Um, they like that. And they like that. the men, And men, of course, senior men are very happy to say, well, it's fine. Jeannie's, she's, you know, she's. She's, she is rare, you know, she is um, marvellous. You know, she's like us, um, unlike these other folk. So um, it's so interesting. Um, you're asking me, and you said that you, one, one of the things you wanted to ask me about today was misogyny. Mm. Um, there isn't a man who doesn't say, I'm not a misogynist, I love women. <laughs> I've got a wife. <laughs> of course I love women. <laughs> look at me, you know. And, of course, it's... Uh, it's, it's, it's not, you know, there's this old fashioned uh, thing, especially with the boys who went to the kind of or men who went to the kind of schools where they taught Latin and Greek. When I went to one of those schools. I learned Latin and Greek to a higher level. Um, the word misogyny, if you're going to be a literalist, you know, of course, is about hating women. But that's not what misogyny is in the modern world. The misogyny, you have to read, look at the definition and unpick it. And it's really about um you know, maintenance of the primary status of men. It's about the fact that, of course, the best surgeons are going to be men. Um, that's quietly spoken. Um, it's about inviting men to come and join your organizations and your uh, uh, supper clubs and all that kind of thing. And it's about, um, and it's also about a sense of entitlement. Um, and, and that is, is bred into boys from an early stage. And that sense that somehow women are, um, are, are, you know, are not, are not basically um, 
uh, as up to certain things. And, uh, and, uh, and, there's, and that creates exclusions. So, um, and of course, women themselves are socialized into also accepting that, although they don't even know that they're doing it. Um, and, and if you're a beneficiary of that, you're special, not like the rest of those. I'll pick up on that in a moment, but first, here's a message from our sponsors. Do you have a groundbreaking research idea that could transform the future of patient safety and clinician well-being? The MPS Foundation could fund it. The MPS Foundation is a global, not-for-profit research initiative backed by 130 years of healthcare expertise from medical indemnity leaders, Medical Protection Society Limited. Our aim is to make the world safer for patients and clinicians in hospital and outpatient practice and dental care environments. Applications are now open. We're looking for proposals that are original, evidence-based and focused on applied research. Find out more at thempsfoundation.org and apply for a grant. The MPS Foundation, transforming the future. Do you you think there's a, I don't know, a sort of a challenge in when we're changing things, especially if you are a woman and you're in a minority, um, you're in a specialty where you're in a minority. So surgery, obviously, that's what we've been talking about. Is there a challenge there to not just conform to be like one of the boys? Because I think that, that that is something that is fed to all of us, all of us women who are, you know, minority in that and how do you guard safeguard against that well i mean you know um i always remember that i mean gloria steinem once was talking about the fact that um smart women of course learn to play the game mm. and um, and uh and you know we i mean for example in the law and it's true in medicine too i i, I saw it when i was chairing the inquiry is that um you um of course um uh you know, there's a way of doing things and you, you can start sort of seeing things in exactly the way that you're taught to see them. And, uh, and, and so you, and you can start conforming to the, the male, male way of doing things. I remember as a young woman um, going being at the Old Bailey when I was still in my 20s and a very senior woman, one of the very few, few C's that there were. Um, uh, um, I, I remember that I, was taking my my jacket off from my suit and putting my gown on over a, a sort of black blouse, and I had my my you know you wear some bands you know around your neck in the wig. It's hell when it's really hot, and and we didn't have air conditioning in those days. And and I was taking off my jacket, and she said to me, um, "You can't go into court without your jacket on." And I said, "Yeah, I know, but it's you know the heat is unbearable." And she said. If the men can do it, we can too. And it was that idea that that we all had to conform and do it like them. And I sort of buckled at that. I, I thought, I'm not, I don't want it to be like that. Why should some of these rules um, uh, not be adjusted? Why should it be that it's that, that, it's that way? And I'm afraid I've always been um, one to sort of challenge rules that I think are not sensible. One of the things I wanted to talk to you about that I think, well, I've read your recent um, piece in the Financial Times, so I think you'll be able to explain this quite nicely for our listeners. Um, 
one of the arguments I've heard a few times, um, mostly from men, is what's the problem with a bit of light banter, a bit of lad culture? And I thought you might be able to articulate that quite nicely. The point I'm making is that the problem is that if you normalise bad behaviour at a lower level, and I'm not talking about giving a wolf whistle at somebody, I'm talking about the fact that um, something's happened in our society that's even worse than it was when I was young, which is that um, social media has allowed people the anonymity and so on and the kind of, if you like, sitting in your own little dark room at your computer. The most horrifying stuff goes on online now. I mean, mm. I mean, what women receive, any woman who puts her head above the parapet as a politician, as a woman who's the, you know, the head of an organisation, a woman who is a journalist, a woman who re- leads a campaign, even, I mean, look at Nazanin uh, 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 Zagari Radcliffe, who's just got out of Iran, and she said um, she felt disappointed that six foreign secretaries hadn't been able to sort out this debt that Britain paid, uh, owed, um, to get her out of there and that she had to spend six years in jail. And she has been introduced online by men, uh, men sort of saying how ungrateful you are. Why don't they send you back to Iran? And uh, and and some of the language that's used mm. would make your hair stand on end. Mm. So let's, let's not be um, in denial about, I mean, often men don't know that this is going on, but women are receiving a ton of this stuff online. Mm. But it's now moved into the public arena so that women in pubs, in bars, in, on, in, in, in public spaces, and I'm sure in hospitals, but certainly we've got evidence of it happening in, in, uh, in uh, surgical theatres, of men under the guise of banter saying, you know, how was your sex life last night? Asking people intimate questions about um, what they do with their boyfriends or their, you know, anyway, the sort of thing that should not be happening yeah. um it's invasive it's uh it's it's vulgar um, i mean it's a coarsening of our of our discourse and where where, where it 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 undermines the self-worth of women mm. and so any wonder that they don't apply for promotion that they don't feel able to um uh, and they don't and, and often don't want to um make themselves too visible because of what this stuff does to them i think without making this is not you know this becomes women's problem, but it's not necessarily their problem to fix. In a situation, and I'm just, you know, thinking of times where this has happened to me, um, where there's a huge power imbalance. So it's a consultant and a trainee. And this really plays into a lot of the stuff that came out from um, the work that Simon Fleming and Becky Fisher did about sexual harassment surgery. When you have that huge power imbalance and somebody says something to you that you know crosses the line because you suddenly feel uncomfortable and you think that that's not okay, but they're your boss and it's their responsibility to train you and therefore you're reliant on them. How can you respond or react? Can you respond? And is there also an onus on the bystanders in that situation? The the onus is on the bystanders. It should not be left to the person who's disempowered in that situation. And don't don't imagine that I'm I'm Mrs. Brave, who all through my life was able to challenge those things um, because I experienced them too. um, And I too remained silent because I thought that if I complain, um, um, then, you know, I'm not going to... I'm not going to get the pupillage. I'm not going to get the whatever. And so um, 
um, women have put up with this kind of thing, and particularly when there's a power imbalance, and you know that that person can be influential in in your advancement. So it's very it's very very difficult, and that's why it's so important that um, that you know our, that that good men step forward, that that other people um, and older women um, are more willing to say that's not all right, Charlie. Mm. And um, and look, can I tell you the honest truth? Guys know. Mm. They know. They know when they're being creepy. They know when they're crossing the line. You know, it's it, 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 this. This always <laughs> makes me laugh. You know, the, uh, in the House of Lords, even you know, where everybody's one hundred and ten, uh, um, I, uh, you know, you'll go in and you know you're wearing your new. You know, the sun comes out. You put on something lighter in colour, and instead of your black that you wore all winter, you go in and somebody says. Oh, Helena, that's a very pretty dress. Oh, am I allowed to say that? Am I allowed to say that? Because, and I say, yes, and I like your tie and it looks gorgeous and you're looking really smashing today, Charlie. And the thing about it is they know fine that it's fine, that it's okay to say that's a nice dress. It's when they say that's a nice dress and stroke you rather close to the side of your breast that you know that it's that we're on a different um, ballpark. But, but, but you know, men men pretend that they don't know the difference uh, of standing up right up close to women, you know, and and uh, pressing themselves against them. I mean, all this stuff that happens and and that that women have you know have to deal with is just it has to you know we have to call it out, and we need our the men in our lives to become good at doing it too. But my son the other day complained to me because he said he was on the bus and he saw a chap on the bus moving up and sitting in a seat quite late at night. And it was, so the bus wasn't crowded. And, mm. uh, and he sits up beside a young woman at the front and he, he said he could see that the young woman did not want to talk to him. And then he started, and then it got louder with the guy getting angry and aggressive and whatever, and probably been drinking. And, um, and so Roland stepped up the bus and said to the young woman is this uh, is this chap uh, is this guy you know is he uh, um, I'm sure he doesn't say chap <laughs> Bother, bothering you <laughs> good bothering. for him and she and she sort of she sort of did a sort of nod thing and he went come on mate you know she obviously wants to be left on her own just you know and the guy then he said wanted to punch his lights out you know mm. and that's the problem is that is that if you do um, intervene in some of those ghastly things, um, you too um, uh, can can get the you know the, the bad end of uh, of this kind of behaviour. But it's not hard in professional circles. You know, nobody's going to suddenly turn around in an operating theatre and punch out the lights of somebody who says, "Stop asking her about her sex life." Uh, you know, stop telling her that you think she's got a great body. You know, those sort of things. No one's, well, very unusually um, would it happen that somebody punched someone in operating theatre. But something I've heard from male anaesthetists, most commonly, who are often the bystanders in a situation where there is an inappropriate conversation between a senior surgeon and a, a junior surgeon who is female, let's say, um, they have said to me, oh, I wanted to say something, but I kind of thought that they might make my life very difficult for me afterwards at work. And it's, it's instead of getting punched on the bus, it's that 
professional am I going to make my life difficult if I am a seen as a serial dissenter or a challenger is that going to make me less likely to get a job in this hospital and and people do talk you know it's unfortunately the medical world is quite small in that way do you think there's any way that we can get past that well it might be that you have a have a box where people can put in uh, complaints and if you um if somebody puts in something saying um um you know Joe Brown has to be um, um, spoken to about his behaviour towards women. Um, and then, um, and then you know, somebody, presumably someone um, from management or somewhere, human resources, has a word with a, a surgeon and says, we've had a number of complaints um, about you're saying inappropriate things to younger members of staff and we really want, um, we don't want that to go on and I'm not going to enter into an inquiry as to what took place, but I just want you to reflect on your behaviour and so on. Mm. And, and then it, it's, it, you know, somebody, somebody would start, you know, reflecting on on their conduct and so um there are ways of doing these things and and, and creating opportunities mm. um, which needn't be as confrontational or as or as worrying to someone in terms of their career if they if they call something out and so i mean of course people have to calculate those things but you see when i was doing the report um for the royal college of surgeons we received um um you know, it, it was this was some of this stuff was happening, um, of course, and it was about sexism. It was about sort of misogynistic behaviour, um, um, but also um, there was the business of, of of race getting in there as well, mm. and of patronising behaviour, and uh, and uh, and you see there are two things that are going on here that are difficult. One is that the existence of the hierarchy um, uh, th- then is attacked. And, and that's not good for professionalism because, of course, there's a hierarchy. Of course, there has to be the person who eventually where the, the, the buck stops, you know, mm. makes the decision, open her up now or do this at some point. And so, there, of course, there have to be hierarchies and there should be respect for those hierarchies. Mm. And so, so you, there has to be a better conversation about, you know, I, I happen not to be a believer in call me Joe. I actually think people should be referred to as, um, you know, doctor and uh, and um, you know, staff nurse and mm. uh, and whatever that whatever their role is, so that the patient knows. And I think this business of I'm Charlie and call me Joe and all that, I I I don't think that's very helpful in retaining professionalism, mm. um, and and I think that matters. And if you want to 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 you know. Keep, keep things operating in a very professional way where people don't feel so comfortable about starting to talk uh, in, you know with impropriety about things then then I think that you you need a certain amount of you know we're talking about low level formality but the team should give, give recognition to the fact that there of course there are hierarchies let's not pretend otherwise mm. however however you have to make possibilities for people to make complaints now for people of color, in the medical profession, who actually, you know, are now a huge percentage of, of our um, health service are, is, is supported by the most wonderful people um, from many different backgrounds. And the idea that there could be blocks on their advancement within the profession is really, is really alarming. And, and it is clear that um, I, was, I, was, I was going to mention that of, uh, of, uh, of a senior woman saying, well, you know, um, a lot of the um, people from, um, uh, um, you know, the Indian subcontinent and so on, they, 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 um, they, they have a corner shop mentality 
where they um, they really don't um, they, they do their work and then they go home and they don't really want to participate in institutions. Well, I don't think that's true. I mean, I think mm. that's a complete and utter fiction. But if somebody persuades themselves of something, then they can. But also, there's a patronizing, incredible attitude betrayed in that. Mm. Uh, and uh, and uh, the reason why people are not participating in their professional organizations is because they don't feel embraced by their professional organizations. And so we've got to um, reckon with the real reasons. But, um, but people will find, find excuses. And also in finding those excuses, disclose attitudes which are, are alarming. Mm. I think earlier you mentioned... Um, and I've heard it framed as door slammers and door openers. There's the women that get to the senior positions and they think, I'm here now, you know, I I had to do it and it was really hard for me. So, you know, why shouldn't it be hard for everyone else? And they're not the door openers, the people that facilitate other women, um, you know, coming up through the ranks. How do you think we can ensure, you know, if and when some of us get to senior leadership positions as women that we continue to be door openers and don't become door slammers um you know i i i um i think there are fewer door slammers nowadays Mm. i really do um i think that it was a phenomenon that you saw much more when women really had to struggle to be in a man's world at all and so, and once they had done it, they kind of rather relished the fact that everybody was in awe and jaws dropped when they heard that someone was a female surgeon or that somebody was a senior person in, you know, physician or, or anything, or, or, a, or a senior lawyer, Queen's Counsel, you know, um, or, or a senior judge. So, so uh, the, the, there can be something very pleasurable about the idea that people think that you must be, um, you know, the bee's knees. Um, and so, um, but that's that's gone as women have almost everywhere um, been, been, you know, uh, uh, getting to high high office. And so um, I think there's less of that, honestly. Mm. I think women are, are in, uh, helping, you know, it's the, it's the, it's the wonderful thing. She, I was sad to see um, Madeleine Albright d- had died yesterday, but she yeah. actually did say, you know, what most of us think, which is there's a special place in hell for women who don't help who other, don't other help women. don't help the women. Yeah. <laughs> And I, I share her sentiment, um, and I and I and I do think it's really important. Um, but they do exist, and um, and of course they, they do exist in in the medical world and and in the legal world. But there are fewer of them. There really are. And uh, and one of the things that I really encourage is that there's a thing which is that women sort of do this business of saying I don't want to be appointed as a token woman, and you know I want it to be on my merit. Well, yeah, I, I see. I keep saying you have to decide who who are the gatekeepers, who are the people mm. who decide what is meritorious. Um, you know, make sure that that, that that some of the things that women can bring to something um, are valued too. Because if you have been a, a, a woman who's dealt with the the, the the kind of challenges that come across women's desks or, or women's uh, lives, then then often it means that they're, they're even more doughty and more suited to, to higher office than anybody. I mean, you know, um, I think women are great risk assessors, probably mm. because we think our whole life risk assessing. Um, I think that that, that um, you know it's not going to be surprising at the, that on empathy levels that women that women you know we're nurtured to, and socialized to sort of be thinking about other folk. So um, I do think that women women's 
you know, talents must be part of that merit assessment. Um, women are also, I mean, are usually, I was not a good manager in my 70s. I became a good manager because I had three kids and I was also practicing at the bar at a high level. And I have to tell you, I had to be a good manager or I wouldn't have survived. Mm. So I learned to be a good manager. And so women learn to be good managers as they go through those things of juggling all that stuff. And they aren't usually lucky enough to have somebody at home who looks after it all for them. We're still the people who are working out school timetables and, uh, you know, who's going to a birthday party and needs a present to take with them and all that stuff that women have to add into their lives, you know. That cognitive load of childbearing or child rearing, um, or speak, do you think that will always be women's or do you think there is a way of shifting that onto men? Oh, can I tell you, there's a great thing that's happened is that when I, um, uh, you know, have young men working with me on a case, uh, they, they, you know, it never happened, honestly, when I was first at the bar. I never heard men talking about their children at all. And now men are, because, of course, they're married to women who've got careers as well and who are making demands of them and saying, you know, it's your turn mate, to, to do the babysitting or to do the laundry or whatever. And so... Um, and they talk about their children and show you pictures of their children in there. And so I, I do think that, that we've, we, are, we are in the process of renegotiating the relationship between men and women in most places, but mm. not everywhere. And there's mm. still many places um, where that's not happening. Um, and, uh, and it falls hard on women. Um, and and it look, you know, um, the, the business of having, having children, birthing children, is you know makes its own demands and um if you carry on feeding a child you know for for the months afterwards all of that stuff is part of of um the business of rearing children and i i do think that um you know it'll be it'll be a while yet but we are getting men much more actively involved as parents and that's why i think and we need more of that because the more you do that then the more the the, the world of work will shift to accommodate because while it's women on the sidelines saying we want um, special uh, arrangements it, it's not going to work and we won't be taking it seriously so it has to be for everybody and a recognition mm. that we're doing it mm. um obviously it's it's just over a year since the um since the report was published, since the independent review was published, um, the action plan was published uh, earlier this month. And I think a few people, including myself, were a bit disappointed to see that the picture that they picked for the front cover was of a white middle-aged man. Um, Unbelievable. <laughs> I mean, who, who, who makes those decisions? <laughs> well, I mean, no, I'd love to know that. Um, and, and I guess, you know, part, <laughs> partly my question is, A, who makes the decisions? But B, how do we make sure that, you know, we're continuing to learn from this and it wasn't just let's hold the mirror up. We've, we've seen this horrible vision of ourselves. We're done. Move on. You know, how do we make sure as a, as a Royal College, as individuals, that we continue to learn? You, you, you know, um... We did this, a similar thing at one stage at the bar um, of pointing out the blocks for women, you know, getting pupillages, you know, getting, you know, started in the career, getting then, you know, a tenancy so that you could be have a permanent place, what you do, do in terms of maternity leave and all that. And, um, and listen, it's been taking us years and we aren't there yet. So, you know, you, the first thing is you, you get it, you get it onto the agenda and you make it serious. Um, I'm, I too, I'm, and I'm going to say it very clearly, I don't think the action plan 
has enough action in it from 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 my perspective and i think mm. that's that you are shared by by many of the people who sat on the panel mm. and um as a classic response is to cherry pick and to do the easy thing the low hanging fruit well i i would like a little bit more boldness in some of the things that are being done and um and i really do think that uh um you know those who are in powerful positions have to be much more demanding um of of change um they should lead the way and you need an inspirational um force behind that um uh but the, the change is not going to come fast enough um if they do it at that pace thank you so much for talking to me today i mean honestly i, I can't say enough how uh, reassured i feel that you um inspire anarchy in me in a good way um all got to have a little touch of that you know uh, <laughs> uh um let's just go outside of the parameters that are expected um and um and 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 be braver about what we're what we're calling for yeah um, we really have to be because what we're talking about is these are human rights issues mm. and, and and people of course don't understand you know they, they think human rights happen in, in in other places and i mean i'm at the moment about to sort of do some work on um you know you were going to be talking to me about afghanistan i mean uh, we did a big evacuation of um of judges and um human rights advocates and uh, prosecutors and so on who were looking after um issues like women's rights in afghanistan and they've had to flee for their lives now that the taliban are you know now we've got the business of ukraine with um and and the whole horror story of the possibility of trafficking on those borders because women are having to flee and have, have, mm. have no resource and and had to flee with very little and and they've got kids to look after and so on and so the 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 challenges in all of that are so great and so um um people imagine human rights happen somewhere else but they happen here too is how we treat each other is mm. about um recognizing um our common humanity and and the, at the heart of it is a business of respecting the humanness of another and uh, and treating them with dignity and including them in everything and uh um and not just creating a bulwark to protect our own privilege mm. I, I, you know that's that's the challenge to us all to make a better world so um the national health service is one of the treasures in our in our society um it belongs to us all and the people who work in it um deserve the best of treatment and that means everybody and um and uh i'd like to see um uh, that being fed much more into the way the whole system is managed um and run You've been listening to Baroness Helena Kennedy talking about misogyny in medicine and I'll link to the reports that we mentioned in the show notes. That's it for this episode, but we'll be back in a fortnight with more. So subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever else you listen to your podcasts and your next episode will be delivered right to your phone. I'm Clara Monroe and this is Doctor Informed. <laughs>